The Education Channel supports individual educational goals and encourages creativity for all. Visit uctv.tv slash education. All right. Well, welcome to Creative Conversations. I'm excited to have both uh, Dr. Lisa Johnson-Davis here and Dr. Jesse Nadora with us today. I'm Gabriela Delgado with the County Office of Education. So before we get started, um, Jesse and Lisa, just to give our, our, our audience members a little bit of context, um, Lisa and I have had quite a bit of conversation this past year about K through 12 education since we're both educators. And with the COVID pandemic, we realized, although it seemed natural to focus on everything that could possibly have gone wrong with schools, we actually kept coming across a lot of uh, possibilities. So we, as, as former counselors, we tend to look at the glass half full versus the glass half empty. And so we naturally were looking at it. The pandemic actually did present a lot of opportunity for things to be done differently or ways for educators to be challenged in a way that they hadn't been before. So although the pandemic has been difficult, it did provide a lot of opportunity for things to just be done in a different way. And so that's really what I wanted to just start with us today is um, that the pandemic has opened a variety of doors. And I think for educators in particular, it's this idea that the way that we've been doing things wasn't necessarily working. And I think we can all own that, that it wasn't working for all kids and all families. And perhaps we can reimagine things to be done differently now because we've been given the opportunity because we really didn't have any choice to do it differently during the pandemic. And so with that in mind, um, Dr. Nadora, I'm, I'm very curious if, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a little bit about your background and kind of what prompted you to, to be in the work that you're in now. What is that that big why for yourself? And then maybe we can just have some dialogue about what are some opportunities that you see that have come up for the communities that you serve? So would you mind sharing with us a little bit about what's your why? Sure. So I'm a doctor of public health, which is actually focused on prevention rather than a curative, you know, curative medicine. I'm a medical doctor. And um, actually, my why is, is, is quite complex and simple at the same time. It's complex in that um, my grandmother, I grew up in, in a ranch in Mexico with no electricity, no running water. And my grandmother was a partera, a curandera, and she, which is basically a, a healer and a midwife. So I saw early on what you can do for other people <laughs> with, a, you know, with a little bit of training and experience. And then I came to the U.S. at six. So all my education has been on this side. And I, you know, I didn't really think about it too much until like about eighth grade. And at that time in the U.S., when you think of health, you think of medicine. So everybody, oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a doctor. Not what kind of doctor. So obviously I was going to looking to be a doctor. And um, part of that was somewhat driven to is the immigrant experience, uh, bilingual, bicultural, translating for my mother at the clinics, seeing some of the inequities that were going on there. And of course, inequity wasn't a word. But um, so that life experience kind of began to focus. But what I found specific to being a doctor of public health was discovering public health uh, in undergrad. And, and I had always had an interest in helping the broader community, the population. My major, you know, when you're in college, 
you you focus on a major, which, you know, what are you going to be doing? I was pre-med, which was meaning getting ready to become a medical doctor or going to medical school. Uh, but my major was actually sociology because I always had this broader view, right? And I didn't discover public health until I was an undergrad. And that's when I saw, oh, wait a minute. There's this health discipline that actually focuses on populations and prevention rather than individuals and, and curing. So that's, that's largely the why for me. Well, you're definitely destined to be, to be uh, doing the work that you're doing. And I know that speaks to, uh, to Lisa in my heart, having um, some similarities in our journey. So um, Lisa, I'll hand it over to you. No, I was just struck because I was thinking about when you said the ranch, um, our, my family had migrated. And so our ranch was over here. And I think about all of the, the kind of traumas and the bad health, um, the bad health care, no health care that my family has. And, you know, we both have lost uh, our parents um, in different ways and forms because of this um, lack of, of understanding of health. You know, and, and, but at the same time, it's rooted, this cultural piece is so important to both of us. It's, it's like there's Western medicine and then there's kind of this cultural medicine. And, and for us, like, we would never want to give that away because that's like our heart and soul, but it's then accessing, you know, the, um, the Western medicine in a way that could actually benefit us health-wise. And I'm just thinking, we see that when we're trying to reimagine, you know, education for us, and I'm thinking about what your story is, how, how is, how does that play out to, to reimagine that from a public health standpoint, knowing that COVID is really impacting a lot of our, um, you know, specific families of color and, and how does that tie in with the work that you, that you have now and that you see kind of moving forward? Well, believe it or not, as researchers in health, there are very few that, you, whether you're a bench scientist working with tissue or animals, or whether you're a population scientist like myself, there are very few of us that haven't been pulled into COVID. I actually, uh, I'm, a, I'm a lead on a, on, a, on a study that is looking at how you increase testing for poor and underserved populations, rapid testing, and how you give access. And then that's going to turn into vaccination. And, and then that's going to turn into what's called long COVID, which is what we're finding, unfortunately, is that individuals who have had severe COVID disease have many, many physical and psychological deficits that are chronic. So it's like this progression. And um, the what happened in my case, for example, I, I'm physically uh, been working at home for over a year, but my job, my work has not stopped. I've, you know, I've been living on on, on, on the computer, basically in meetings with on Zoom or, you know, other platforms. And um, the work that I was doing physically before then was similar, but obviously uh, the partners that I was working with, particularly community health centers, community health centers, federally qualified health centers are primary care uh, hospitals or not primary care clinics where poor uh, and underserved persons actually receive their health care. And those are the, the facilities that I work with mainly to, um, to address screening, cancer screening, colorectal cancer screening, uh, vaccination, like human papillomavirus vaccination, for example. A lot of people don't understand that. Yes, can't, no, well, no, cancer is not one disease. It's many diseases. And some cancers are like totally preventable, even with a vaccine, like 
cervical cancer, for example. Um, that's the prevention side. So turning back to COVID, um, the research that I was doing with community health centers just kind of pivoted over to from, from cancer screening to testing. And because it's the same populations, the same facilities working with poor and underserved populations. So um, it's basically do, making that pivot. Do you think that that the whole process that you mentioned about, you know, now we're stuck kind of at home and we're all very similar, you know, we're doing a lot, but in, in a way it's felt for us to be the most creative. Like we've actually have the time and the space in some ways to think we see new ideas that are, you know, being reimagined. And I'm wondering in just what you're talking about, are you, are you seeing, even though you're, you know, homebound and, the COVID world, do you see that this is kind of an opportunity for something, you know, or do you see little stirrings of, of different ways of thinking about um, connecting with people about health and um, just interested in seeing what your thoughts are in, in terms of that's kind of a creativity of a community engagement. We call like we're calling it. We don't know what it is yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, community engagement is actually, I'm the director of community engagement for the Altman Clinical Translational Research Institute. I'm a co-lead for community outreach and engagement at the Morris Cancer Center. So, I mean, those words actually have a lot of meaning. But to your question on creativity, the, the reality of not having to drive into the office, for example, has opened up, uh, for me personally, uh, a very specific creative opportunity, which is I get up. If I wake up early, say 6, 6.30 in the morning, which I know isn't early for a lot of folks, but, you know, 6, 6.30, I actually can get up and go sit on the couch and, and think and write notes. Uh, the house is very quiet. And um, so that's like a, a personal reality that has come to bear, you know, or, or has become a reality with, with COVID, not having to get ready and drive into the office. Um, the, you know... The other, the other change, I think, is really it's a little more difficult, though, to be creative with individuals on a computer. Uh, the platforms are a little bit clunky, and it's, it's much more difficult to read emotions, especially if you're a person that, that can sense other people's energy. And I think most of us can. We, we just don't pay attention to it. It's like the difference between hearing and listening, right? We hear everything more or less, unless you have a hearing problem uh, or limited hearing, but we don't listen. And listening is, or, you know, having virtual meetings that, you know, your distance from, from that interaction, from the energy and, and being able to read people. So that, that, that level of interaction is a little bit different. Um, so I, I think that has been a little bit of a, more of a challenge on the creativity side for me anyway. Well, and it's interesting you say that um, I was sharing with Lisa earlier today that there were some notes that were passed along at a, at, at one of the many Zooms I've already, I've already had just today and it was with uh, the County Office of Education and um, County Behavioral Health. And the meeting notes were uh, taken from, I think, 100 different people that participated at this meeting just to get feedback about where are our families and students now that we're moving towards reopening schools. And uh, by and large, the topic that kept coming up was um, higher levels of anxiety, um, a significant 
disconnect or lack of connectivity. But what they meant by connectivity was actually the engagement, is that students were not having that same connection with other students and parents hadn't had that with um, with parents and teachers at the same levels that they were having before COVID. And then the last category was also just the general support. So although we have had, um, you know, we've been able to figure out ways to work remotely and to even do distance learning remotely, that lack of engagement can't be substituted with a computer, right? That we can do part of it, but those pieces that you're speaking to is, to, to someone who's done counseling work, and I know um, I'll speak for Lisa in saying this, that that's that's what we felt was the biggest loss during COVID, is that people didn't have that personal humanistic connection. And so for students who might be struggling to um, you know read or decipher someone's facial expressions, it's difficult to just do that on a computer when you can turn off the, com- the computer screen. And then you say, I really can't even see the teacher now because I turned it off or they can't see the student. So I'm just curious, in your work with families this last year, what were some some things, some practices that you can maybe already see that are, are going to be changing moving forward to try to be able to address that particular fact that although we can see many people, many patients, many families uh, being crammed in because of Zoom, how do we keep that humanistic element so that we don't lose that connection with our families? Any yeah, thoughts so, or ideas on that? Sure. Well, I can't speak to like direct interacting with patients because I don't I don't do that. You know, I'm I'm the kind of research I do is more with the program staff, like say at clinics or or nonprofits or other other entities that that we work with. It's but it's it's very similar in that how you interact not just with your colleagues, but um, with your uh, community partners and the. It, I'll just say that it's it's a lot easier if you're interacting with individuals who you've had a relationship with before COVID, right? Because you can become a little more attuned to what they're saying in terms of the cadence, the pitch, you know, other voice, um, and 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 you kind of we're probably used to their mannerisms, so it, it's a lot easier. So I would imagine that a teacher. If you're talking about a teacher or a counselor that has individuals or, or, or patients that they worked with for a while, it's probably going to be a lot easier to interact with with those with those folks. Where with people that you've only met virtually, um, it's a fairly different experience. You really, uh, I'm actually looking forward to meeting these people that I've been having interactions with over the last year that I've never physically met. You know, right? So. I imagine that it's going to be kind of a, a, a different situation. So I would expect that, um, that yes, it's easier to, uh, to maintain the interactions with, with folks that you've, that you've known for a while. Um, but at the same time, it, I think over time, what I'm seeing is that it, as the farther along we get into the, you know, staying on, on computers and having com- only computer meetings, we become desensitized, even further desensitized. And I have yet to see any, uh, the only kind of real change, quite frankly, that has been proposed about a year in is that we now start taking the last 10 minutes off of our meetings, right? Ending at the 50 minute point rather than at the top, especially those of us who go from meeting to meeting to meeting. 
And but that's more like for to be able to get up, walk around, go get something to drink, go to the restroom, whatever it is that you need to do. So I think if you think of students or or if you think of the other other I mean kids, I can't imagine, you know, children that that are like moving around. Um, I imagine that they have similar adjustments that need to be made in, in order to keep things going. And, and quite frankly, I mean, I think at the end of the day, this work that we're doing in many ways is just a placeholder to try to get us through and keep us moving to get back to, quote, reality, <laughs> as it were, right, um, after we start interacting again. Uh, even though we've gotten a lot of work. I mean, I, I've actually gotten entire grants funded, publications, um, new relationships, like I said, but they're, they're different. They're, they're just different. And, and, and I think things will be better once we are back to where we were before. I like how you said the word different because kind of my mantra is, is when I do my research is thinking, how are you different than you were before? So um, I'd love to share. We did this study about 4,700 participants, adolescents in 9th through 12th, right at the beginning of COVID, kind of end of school year. And we asked them, you know, what their experience at that point had been in COVID. And it was funny how there were these ideas that had come up that we weren't even really expecting. You know, they were trying to be more physically active. There was a lot of young people talking about how they had the time to actually take care of themselves and the self-care pieces. And there were more families that were engaged. You know, teens were talking about just their families were, you know, involved. They got to be closer to their families. And so I'm just kind of juxtaposing that with your thoughts. And I'm wondering, is there, is this ripe for, we've been in what we call this liminal space, which is like, we're not, you know, out in the real world and, you know, we're in the real world at the same time. So being in this chaotic space, is there something that we might expect that, that we're, we're changed, you know, we're different if we're hearing these rumblings from, from young people kind of taking this experience and then doing the best they could with it. And I wonder what the ramifications might be for, especially in your work, when you're thinking about, you know, how you are blending the public health piece and community engagement. If we do have young people and families that have been kind of internally engaged in their own bubble, when they're let out kind of freedom, is there opportunities for you to be able to do some of that work that, that seems like that's your passion? In engaging populations. Yeah. Um, the way I think about this is, you know how when you might be ill, an illness that might take you through a couple of weeks, or maybe if it's more serious, like you break an arm or something, uh, or you're in deep pain. It's interesting how at that particular point in time, you'll just do about anything to try to get back to normal. And um, I think we're kind of in that, but a kind of a slow burn, really ongoing reality. Um, I think as a species or as human beings, we, as soon as we're back to like where we were, we forget everything else, that pain that we were in or those deficits that we might have had. Um, and, and we're back to where we were. So that's kind of my personal belief in terms of what I think will happen. Um, and 
I, the individuals that will have sustained changes are ones that have already integrated practices like right now during COVID in terms of what they do or they're not doing. Um, for example, if you instituted, instituted or, or began a different sleeping pattern, uh, and you've been doing that for months or you're eating less or eating more. I mean, I'm thinking most of our cases, we're eating more. Um, or as a family, you know, if a family decided that, um, you know, some families, they know that everything has to do with the computer and, and, and being, or being on your cell phones as a family, if a family basically said, you know what, we're, I've been on the computer all day. The parents are saying, I've been on the computer all day. You've been on the computer half of the day. You're on your phones. So new family rule or new family practice, six o'clock or after dinner, no more technology, and we're going to do this. And we're going to do that three times a week. I think individuals or families who have instituted that kind of change, if they saw the benefit to that, I, I see it being maintained. For the rest of us that have kind of just been going along, I see us going back to to where we were yeah honestly <laughs> that's a scary thing gabby what do you think about that i was i was hoping that you were going to uh, paint me a more rosy picture <laughs> <laughs> well no, we're creatures of habit but, you know we are <laughs> well that's i think as educators we want to do this thing. no i didn't hear that because we don't want certain things to go back to the way that they were when we you know, when I when I was hearing you, I thought, you know, you're right. There, are, for myself, I can say routines definitely changed, but getting getting two hours back in my day has made a significant impact on my mental health and physical health, and I can attribute that to not having to sit in traffic. So I don't want to go back to that because now I I have seen I reap the I can reap the benefits, and I can I can see the last year. Um, you know, when you think of how much time we spend in our vehicles, it's it's quite sickening uh, for those of us who have longer commutes. But I, I was also struck when you were sharing that, Jesse, what does that mean for our families of color who were struggling, you know, even before COVID, struggled during COVID, and more than likely will struggle after COVID? And I, and I think of a lot of our students who who weren't given the the luxury of being able to try out new things um, during this time? Although you know they they we tried our best to give everyone access to um, you know connectivity, resolving their issues, and you know giving them hotspots or having a laptop. I think of those families that we oftentimes serve in our communities that that experienced COVID in a in a much different way because of those significant factors that were present. And I wonder, so does that mean that for them, it goes back to the way that it was before COVID because they didn't have the, like I said, the luxury or the privilege of being able to say, well, I just get to not commute now. But that was, that's a privilege for me to say, I don't have to commute. I can just, I can zoom into a meeting. What does that mean for our families that maybe aren't in that same spot? The reality that 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 many of uh, of our Latina, Latino, African American, poor individuals have disproportionately been infected, uh, had disease, or and or died creates a totally different reality, um, which many of us, you know, fortunately have not had to go through. It's not unlike the two thousand eight Great Recession, where a lot of folks who might have had some equity in a home lost their home. 
and they have to start over again. Well, for many families, unfortunately, particularly, you know, Latino families, Latino families, um, that's the reality. They've had people who have died. I mean, I've lost the closest family members that I have lost have been cousins to COVID, but I've lost family to COVID. Now, there are many folks out there who haven't experienced that. And, and I also have had the, the, the misfortune of not having the ability to grieve with that family, right? So you've got that on top of it. Um, so disproportionately, I think many in our communities, particularly the poor communities, have that reality. Now, and I can, I can counter that or just oppose that with my academic colleagues who their children have always been in school. They, they were in schools where they were always in school. They weren't at home in front of a computer at all. So, I mean, those are like two very, very different levels. I think the majority of folks are in the middle. And, um, but it's still, it's still a different reality. And so, you know, that, that, that's where we are. And, and no, not everything is, is, is doom and gloom or bad or, not everything is rosy. Um, I, I think there there are there are some things in there that are going to take a while to to go away, both positive and negative. Um, but I, I do believe that we we like the middle, you know, and 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 the things that we're used to, um, we're we're going to keep chugging along um, the way we were. As soon as we get to that point where we can, you know, get off the computers, um, I, I don't know. It'll be fascinating to see whether school districts, for example, um, take on policies that that limit commutes for teachers. Uh, it, you know, if, if that's if, you know hybrid models uh, of teaching, um, that will all be very very fascinating. And, and is there going to be a difference between San Diego Unified, you know, a monster giant district? versus, um, you know, districts like Poway or, you know, districts that are farther north, um, what, what are the impacts going to be? I, I think it would be fascinating to look at that and, 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 and ask 12 months after we kind of normalize to some degree, 24 months after we normalize, what, are, you know, what happened within families, what happened within, within uh, faculty and instructors. So. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because, when Gabby and I have talked about this, when we first started um, just talking to schools, and then when we did the survey, students, even in June of 2020, were stating that they had lost a family member from COVID. And yet at the same time, we would hear from colleagues, well, you know, we can go back to school. We don't really have COVID here. We've come back to school in person. It was like, yay. And we've not had one student who's gone out, but that was really not in our areas of, of high um, poverty. And that was quite a different story, which I still don't think has been fully articulated by the media that even back then. And, and I, and I share and um, appreciate um, the loss that you mentioned as well. You know, we, we've all been touched by that. And I think for me in this, this period where I've really kind of dissecting things, I mean, I'll, I'll be very free to share. My mom was on dialysis for eight years, which is pretty long. Um, and it was, you know, as a Latina, that was, you know, pretty much based on the fact that she had a fear of healthcare. <laughs> she never wanted to go to the doctor and didn't have the money to go to the doctor and neither did my dad, but also just 
you know, the, the really lack of understanding, you know, vaccines or health or anything like that. And, and so I feel like in this time period that we're in, knowing that those individuals of color, you know, you can't help but hear what's going on in the world. You can't help but hear that we should have a vaccine, you know, and, and my daughter was saying everybody who was, is working, you know, person of color should have had a vaccine. I mean, they're frontline workers as well. It's what being different than we were and trying to be an optimist, how could that impact our communities in a way going forward? You know, we get back from COVID is, are there some strategies that we might be able to put in place, even to talk about like the fear of healthcare that can be systemic in the culture. Oh yeah, yeah. I um, the the opportunities for, for for betterment or improvement. Actually, it's it's ironic. It, it's somewhat parallel with um, everything having to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion with regards to racism, right? Um, the, the police violence that that has that has been almost concurrent well, it's against blacks you know against African Americans and now more recently Asian 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 Pacific Islanders right that whole reality um, has has begun to change um, it's put the conversation front and center and and individuals who have championed that conversation are in a better position to um, to try to advocate or uh, insist on more permanent changes, not just oh, we're gonna we're gonna create statements or um, get some support from these communities or those communities. No, it's at every level. When you look at okay, so if we have systemic racism, usually part of the reason for that is because the decisions that are made, whether that affect the distribution of funds, specific policies, access, in the case of your parents, for example, access to health care. Um, think of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Um, if you didn't have a certain political administration in place, that would have never happened. If we hadn't had the, the, the previous administration in place, a lot of the um, chipping away or, or elimination of, of, of funds and, 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 and support that was there for that access avenue, which is what it was, an access avenue for health. Um, so the, the concurrent energy around anti-racism, around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and this pandemic have, have begun a dialogue that I think has a very good um, chance well, we'll create an opportunity that we actually have serious dialogues that lead to systematic, i.e. policy or leadership changes that then lead to real impacts, right? Uh, in schools, if you don't have leadership that listens to community or is of the community, well, they're a little bit more removed from making decisions that are in tune with community. And, and I think if you, it's, it's, it's the old adage of if you don't have 
a place at the table, you're going to be part of the meal, <laughs> or you're going to be back there serving the meal, cooking and serving the meal rather than eating the meal. Um, it, it, it's the same kind of thing. And I think a lot of us have, have lived that throughout our lives. If we're from humble beginnings, I'm from very humble beginnings. I grew up in the projects and, you know, in South Phoenix, not yes, sort of poor, poor financially, but not poor culturally or spiritually or any of that, uh, or family wise, but, um, but yes, poor in terms of having, well, this is the seventies, you know, that block of cheddar cheese or the, or the, you know, 56 ounce, uh, can of peanut butter, uh, you know, this is the Department of Agriculture before EBT and, and food stamps. It was like those commodities. Mm-hmm. You know, I know what that's like. I mean, now living in North Park in San Diego, working in La Jolla, being part of UC system, the University of California system. It's a very different reality. And um, so. You know, how do we uh, all of this, all of these issues that are happening, um, I think there's hope to, 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 to have individuals that maybe were not at the table coming closer to the table or to the table and then being there for a while in order to, to institutionalize some of the, the advances or improvements that need or should have happened a while ago. So I, I have to ask, um, so what was it, for you that made that difference, you know, just shared a little bit about your background and and, um, those humble beginnings and now having a very different um, experience from your, now your current um, day-to-day life. What was it that for you made that, that difference? To be successful or? Yeah. So when we look at people that have that similar background and we say, put them in those statistics how yeah. will we describe certain people? So what was it that made that impact so that you now um, are on the other side and are at the table? Yeah, well, there are a couple of things. I think one thing is um, being loved, <laughs> being told that you can be, you know, something or somebody, um, not being supported in that because my parents weren't educated, right? So they couldn't, they couldn't tell me about do this or do that or, you know, how to prepare for SATs or how to succeed, how to even have a goal to go to college. But number one, I was loved. Number two, I was raised by strong women. Uh, I, I am of the belief that women typically are better at nurture, not better, but they, they tend to nurture children more. And, they, and in the Latino community, first males, which I'm a first male, I'm the oldest son, get a lot more attention than females. So that culturally uh, or, or gender wise, I had that in my favor. Um, but the being surrounded by individuals who, if you showed that that you had an interest and you were willing to put the, the energy, the work into it, would support you. I credit a lot of my teachers, and I remember my teachers from elementary school. So, yeah. we 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 can relate. We hear these stories from our young people, and so. I think for um, teachers who might be watching for them to know, sometimes the answer isn't in the curriculum and it isn't in the the schedule that is created that we know is designed to support kids, but it's in providing that sense of love. You, you can't, the, the curriculum's not going to, to give you that. That's, that's kind of come from that teacher, from that yeah. principal, that, that counselor. Yeah. Um, and so, and I, I had a really 
speaking to teachers, speaking to educators. I had a really amazing experience when I was doing my doctorate. I volunteered. Um, I can't remember what program I was a part of. I, I was doing um, uh, basically the research was on on pregnancy prevention with high school students, but somehow I ended up volunteering to substitute teach second graders. And number one, that was probably one of the most tiring things that I've ever done in my life to be with a class of second graders for four or five hours or whatever it was. But, but the thing that I found really, really amazing was that by interacting with these children after four or five days, you could clearly tell the children that were struggling. And you could clearly tell that if those children didn't get the attention, the support, the love that they needed at that particular point in time, they were, they were going to be doomed. And, and I think as educators, you have to know that. I think you have to see that. I mean, if I saw it as a non-educator, just being in that classroom, um, that's where the, 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 these resources that I was talking about, districts that, that maybe, or school rooms, or, you know, that don't have districts. I think it's appalling that teachers don't have every possible support starting with their own salary, um, but tools, books, <laughs> just in some cases, very basic things, air conditioning that works in the building so that there's comfort. Um, it's, just, it's just ridiculous because um, very, very few children, unless you have a real physical deficit or cognitive deficit, everybody, I think, has the ability to succeed. Uh, I don't consider myself the brightest, you know, the brightest or the sharpest tool in the shed. But what I did have, but that was instilled in me early on was persistence. And that going back to like what helped you get through, I think the persistence part of it, the love, the persistence, and, 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 and that belief basically not being so, so, so pushed down that in, you internalize this, like I can't do it, right? There are a lot of children, unfortunately, walking around with that because they get it from a lot of different places, from their own parents, from, from, from their peers, from teachers. And it just takes that encouragement, but it also takes solid, consistent, ongoing education, you know, being taught real skills. And I will say this, part of the reason that I did not end up going to medical school was because, unfortunately, I did not get the the degree or the or the depth of science and mathematics that I should have gotten to be competitive. It turns out though that I was at a very competitive place called Cornell University for my undergrad. You know, I went from a high school in the, you know, in the early 80s that was having riots between blacks and Mexicans because the composition was basically 50% black, 50% Mexican, to an Ivy League school in upstate New York in Ithaca. And the math and science that I got was okay, but it wasn't Ivy League level. So I really struggled and I would have to go on and do a postdoc to get my, you know, my, my grades up above a B, you know, to, to, to be fully competitive. And so I pivoted, I pivoted, I pivoted into another area. Uh, and also I found that that other area was more in, in line with what I wanted anyway, but, but um, there are so many students that do have that capability that don't have the opportunity and, and it isn't fostered early on. Um, so, you know, it, it's all relative. Sure. I, I was the first generation on both sides of my family to go to college. And I, I think what you're saying is, you know, we all have potential, but 
you know, I, I named my daughter after a college professor because it's just those teachers that really gave us the opportunity to be who we are today. And I'm sure, you know, I feel like a sense of purpose because not only am I trying to, you know, bring my both sides of my family out of poverty, but I also see that it's a generational shift because now my daughters are college educated and they would never have had that opportunity. And only because I was able to scaffold that with them, if, you know, it wasn't, if I wasn't in the picture, maybe they wouldn't have had that opportunity. So I think what you're saying is what something that Gabby and I talk about all the time. And that's why we kind of get to this kind of purpose at the end of conversations is like, how, how do you move forward then? You know, what, if you think that all young people, if families, everybody has this potential, you know, we have some really harsh realities ahead in in store for us as a, as a nation, internationally, as a planet. We need our kids to have, be scientists, to be physicists. We need people who have ideas. In your future then, five years, 10 years from now, how, how do you see this kind of, yes, be utopian, be optimistic, you know, like, can we get there? What does that look like if every young person has the opportunity from the beginning of their birth to be anything that they can be? What does that, how does that look like in your work and for you as a person? Well, the, the most important thing is that we all, and I mean all, at all ages, at all genders, uh, sexual orientations, and so on, that we all are masters of our destiny with regards to civics, politics in particular. Um, We in this country, in the United States of America, now granted, um, a lot of what we have is on the backs of others, um, whether it's products that are being imported to us, uh, right from across the border, right over there in, in Mexico, uh, or even farther down in China. I mean, somebody had to put a lot of sweat and tears and muscle for us to consume. We're a consumer society to consume these products. And the so we have a lot of resources in this country, um, but we do, you know, we still um we're a little bit asleep at the switch in terms of what really matters and what really counts, which is that how those resources are prioritized and distributed. Um, to me, the in health, the, the view, particularly not just in public health, but I think there's a view that has gone much broader that basically talks about if you want a healthy individual, at the end of the day, a lot of it has to do with if it's an adult, that, that adult having meaningful employment, having a meaningful job, right? Um, in this country, because so much of our healthcare access is, is driven by insurance, health insurance, having health insurance coverage, which is slowly bankrupting our economy, quite frankly, uh, without the benefits of having healthier individuals, okay? But it's complicated. Um, the... Um, So part of the reason that we are where we are is because as a society, our priorities have really not been focused on the things that really matter the most, which have to do with education, with being healthy, healthcare, 
having clean air, having clean water, um, having um, livable wages. You know, these are bigger kind of things that you would think, well, yeah, but uh, how, how are you going to get there? Well, the way we get there is, and I think youth, adolescents, children are, are wonderful at getting behind and coming up with creative ideas on how we get good policies and, and political leaders moving on, on certain things. I think that's what it's going to take. It's going it's to take continued involvement so that we elect the policies that are made and the people that represent us in the, in the creation of those policies really speak for us as a community, as a society. Part of the reason that we continue to suffer through these racial inequities or gender inequities or, you know, education inequities, they have to do with leadership or the lack of leadership in many cases, right? And decisions that are being made of where the resources are going and how resources are being spent and so on and so forth. Basic decisions about, or, you know, basic decisions about who gets tax breaks. I mean, I know I'm getting a little bit into the weeds, but um, when you tax certain things and don't tax others, um, you know, it, it, it just sets up systems that, that are not working for the betterment of all of us. They're working for the betterment of the few. And, and you can go talk to any economist and take a look at what's happened to individual wealth and the percentage of wealth that is concentrated where. How many people are the wealthiest people in this country, right? You have this amazing chart, you know, amazing charts that you can look at that basically say, you know, X percent, the majority of the wealth is concentrated in these hundred thousand people or a million people of, you know, the millions that we have. So I'm not talking about becoming socialist or a communist state. You know, that's where a lot of conservatives go. What I'm talking about is we as a society, and this is public health. We as a society valuing the things that really matter. Um, we've moved away from valuing each other and valuing things more, possessions more. Everything from houses to vehicles to our iPhones to our iPads, whatever. Rather than valuing our spouses, our kids, um, valuing clean air, valuing clean water, you know, <laughs> it, it, I'm sorry, but I mean, that, that, that's, that's the level that we have to think at. And, and, um, and it's, it's chipping away. It's really chipping away at our planet. I mean, look at, look at the plastic waste, look at, you know, look at the substance abuse, look at, I mean, all of those things are symptomatic of, uh, of the realities that we as individuals are facing the pain that we're trying to dull, uh, or in some cases, you know, the fact that we're, that we're so positive because we see the light, whatever that light might be, right? There are a lot of people like that out there. And without them, we would be lost, <laughs> like yourselves, for example. I mean, you're putting your positive energy into spreading the word, into, into sharing the love, into supporting educators. I mean, that's a treasure, you know? So thank you. You know, I mean, that's, that's the other side of it. <laughs> Oh, thank you for that. I think it's, you know, the, like you're saying, prioritizing the values, you know, um, and to use your analogy that you used earlier, creating systems that allow everybody to have a seat at the table um, 
without that, we're not going to ever really see that change because not everybody's voice is at the table and decisions are made on behalf of people without having their voice or perspective really, um, really heard. And so I, I appreciate your, your authenticity. I appreciate you taking a risk and sharing with us a little bit about your background and the passion for the communities that you serve. Um, there's quite a bit of work to be done and one creative conversation isn't going to solve all of it. Our hope is that people start to have dialogue to say, how can I go back if I, if COVID did allow me to prioritize my own values and my own needs, how can I do that now for my own students? And so um, that's one of the takeaways that I'm going to take away from this conversation is, is really pushing that idea for a lot of our schools to say before we only continue to have the conversation about, about academics, is are kids okay to re-engage? Is your staff okay to come back and re-engage? And we can't ask them to do something if they're not quite ready. And so perhaps it's just starting with a conversation to, to say, how are you and how was the last year and where are you, you know, on the spectrum of, of being able to reintegrate into um, life after COVID? Just even starting there for some folks might be a huge shift where we tend to oftentimes um, jump into fix-it mode and say, well, here's a solution and we're going to do full day and it'll go back to just being normal. And you think, well, that may not be the case for everyone. And so can we start by just acknowledging that we're human <laughs> and that we're not robots and we might need a minute. And perhaps just, just offering that from that uh, perspective of love and support to say, we just want to make sure that you are okay. How can we prioritize our values as a school district, as a school site, as a teacher with uh, his or her classroom? How do we just start there to, to give people that breathing room that they might need? So that's a takeaway that I'm going to take from you. So I, I appreciate you, Dr. Nadora. Lisa, I appreciate your thoughts um, as always. Uh, we look forward to the next creative conversation because this could have been a three-part series for sure. I think we touched on a lot of different things, but I appreciate both of you. So uh, with that, I thank you very much for joining us today.